Bienvenidos. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. First off, La Raza Chronicles wants to thank all of our listeners who pledged and made our fund drive a huge success. We were able to make our goal, and for that, we're very thankful. You can still continue to support KPFA and receive some of our wonderful thank you gifts. Those thank you gifts will be available until Monday. So please, if you'd like to continue to support our work, you can do so at kpfa.org. On tonight's program, we bring you Noticias on Puerto Rico, a report back from poet Rafael Jesus Gonzalez on the International Tribunal of Conscience convening in New York. We will also feature the film The Other Barrio and bring you a calendar of upcoming events along with a ticket giveaway to flamenco concerts that will be happening here in the Bay. Todo esto y mucho más. Listen and enjoy. Recently, La Rosa Chronicles' Vilma V sat down with Puerto Rican activist and Mills College professor Deborah Santana to discuss Puerto Rico's financial crisis similar to the Greek economic situation. She discusses Puerto Rico's continuing status as a 21st century U.S. colony. Let's take a listen to that interview now. So I have in the studio live Mills College professor Deborah Santana, Deborah has been a longtime activist in the Bay around Puerto Rico. And as I said, she's a professor at Mills College. So there's been a lot of comparison to the Greek situation. You know, I've seen a number of articles online comparing the two countries in the last two weeks, including one that you shared with me called The Tragedy of Puerto Rico, America's Very Own Greece. What's your thoughts about that comparison? Well, you know, there are some similarities, also important differences. Of course, Puerto Rico is a colony without a shred of sovereignty. The sovereignty was kidnapped and is still held in ransom in Washington, D.C., where Greece is at least officially an independent country, which, however, has uh, surrendered uh, important parts of its sovereignty, such as the ability to control its own monetary policy, and especially with the uh, the various memorandums being uh, forced to submit its um, its financial and, and, and budget uh, decisions to the approval or disapproval of the European Union. So you have some important differences, but of course, a lot of similarities. This, this whole debt issue, the debt destroying an area and allowing the creditors to come in and impose austerity so that uh, everyday people need to pay and suffer in order to pay the banks. This, of course, is not limited to Puerto Rico and Greece. We're, we're seeing uh, cities in the United States, such as Detroit. We're seeing other countries, such as Argentina, which is also an important case. But there are definitely similarities and differences. Who owns Puerto Rico's debt? Who are they trying to make a deal with, if anyone well, in, in this particular moment, the debt which was incurred by the uh, really, really started to ramp up in the 1990s with the repeal of Glass-Steagall and the movement and banks such as uh, Goldman Sachs to, to, to make uh, deals with countries and even with cities such as Oakland, for example. Puerto Rico began uh, taking on more debt in order to run its uh, government, in order to keep its, uh, its public utilities afloat and in some cases uh, to be able to pay its pensions. This is not so different from, from other places. But in the past uh, several years, the credit agencies have been progressively downgrading 
Puerto Rico's credit to now is junk status. It keeps becoming another downgrade. You have to wonder how many grades of junk status there are. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Greece. And at this point, a lot of their debt has been bought up at pennies on the dollar by the vulture funds, the hedge funders. At this point, the hedge funders own at least 25%, and some people believe that it's up to 50% of Puerto Rico's public debt, some of it of with the government itself and some of it with, the, with the actual public utilities as well. Given that the U.S. is a big, big player in Puerto Rico's economy, granting tax havens in the past, overseeing a lot of what happens in the Puerto Rican economy. How can they then turn around and say that there's not going to be a bailout or you alluded to Detroit, Puerto Rico's not a sovereign state, cannot file for bankruptcy. Can you talk about that complexity that they're hammed in in many ways by this colonial relationship with the United States? Well, because uh, Puerto Rico is a colony is pretty much subject to whatever Congress and the, uh, the courts and uh, the, the president decide. In, in the case of Detroit, Detroit has access to chapter nine bankruptcy, uh, federal bankruptcy. Puerto Rico was excluded from from that in 1984. And by the way, Washington, D.C. was also excluded because it's ruled directly uh, by Congress. And because it is a colony, it, it doesn't have any uh, independence or sovereignty. It cannot go to the international market as well. So it's pretty much at the mercy of whatever the United States wishes to do. The United States has basically run Puerto Rico ever since it military invaded and occupied it in 1898 as basically a cash cow. Whether it was the sugar barons, whether it was devaluing Puerto Rico's currency at the time by 40% and then requiring Puerto Rico to switch over to the dollar, which meant that basically Puerto Rico gave the United States a loan <laughs> in, in that sense, whether it was facilitating the, the, the corporations to get tax breaks to, to, uh, to put their pharmaceuticals into Puerto Rico, and now whether it also gives all kinds of incentives and actually requires the Puerto Rican government to give incentives to the large corporations such as Walmart and Walgreens. Puerto Rico has more Walgreens and, and Walmarts per square mile than any other place on the face of the earth. We are a cash cow for the Wall Street bankers. Basically, like you have an orange that you keep squeezing and squeezing and squeezing, and now we're getting down to the dregs. And now the vultures are swooping in, and the United States government says, not our problem. Yeah, some of the statistics that you find, the labor participation rate, the unemployment rate being twice that of any state in the U.S., and the, it seems like a, a serious exodus of young people from the island. So can you talk about how those stats constrain what Puerto Rico can do with their $70 billion debt? Yes, well, first of all, Puerto Rico's official unemployment is about 14 to 15 percent. It's actually much higher, just like here in the United States. The official employment rates really don't tell you the whole stories. The labor participation rate has actually always been fairly low in Puerto Rico, about 40 percent. It's about the same. And what that means is not that no one else is working, is that many of them are working in the informal or underground economy, which is a parallel economy. It's not only the illicit economy, it's everything from, from mechanics to, uh, to doctors to all kinds of different types of services that are basically paid for by cash. Up to probably 25% of Puerto Rico's economy is this informal economy. There is no ability to actually collect taxes from them. This is not something that's new. Also, the exodus of, of young people, it's also not something new. It's something that is chronic with colonial societies. We're seeing 
seeing another wave of it really since 2005, 2006, when, when the recession, actually depression in Puerto Rico really began. So given this informal economy that seems to be such a big part of Puerto Rico's economy, how will austerity be enforced or look like given that there's a lot of people who aren't even engaged in this formal... Well, what's happening is that the, the Puerto Rico government has basically uh, raised its sales tax from 7% to 11.5%. It's just happened on uh, July 1st. Mm. And they have basically expanded the number of items that are going to be charged sales tax. So it's um, nearly all food items. Uh, wow. The very few items are going to be exempt where before you had a lot of exemptions for food items. So what's going to happen is that especially the small businesses and especially the people who are playing by the books are going to be hit very hard. It's probably going to lead to another wave of bankruptcies of small businesses. But the interesting thing is that it's not actually going to, to-, to touch uh, the informal economy and the same exemptions for the large corporations are still in place. They're the ones that should be paying. They should be paying uh, at least 10, if not 20 percent, such as Walmart. <laughs> I will pick on Walmart, but they're not the only ones. Uh, that has not been put in. The, 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 the big bankers, the big corporations, even the big local criollo uh, rich are also not uh, being forced to pay. In, in a sense, this is very much parallel to Greece, where they keep raising or raising the value-added tax, but nothing against the oligarchy. And of course, it creates a lot of resentment for other people who will say, well, why should I pay? If the big guys aren't paying. And it ends up stalling the economy. Tell us a little bit about the Kruger Report and Washington, D.C. and those bankers. Yes, well, it's interesting that some people have said, well, since Puerto Rico isn't on the international market, at least they don't have to deal with the IMF. But what happened is that Puerto Rico paid money. They paid about a half a million dollars to Ann Kruger, who was one of the top people at the IMF before she recently, quote unquote, retired, and two other senior people of the uh, IMF to produce a report on Puerto Rico's economy and its possibilities. So uh, she spent a couple of months actually interviewing Puerto Rican economists and also looking at a report that was issued by the the Federal Reserve of New York. And then she put together her own report, which was also just released, where she basically uh, gives the old recipe for the IMF as well. You need to privatize more. You need to cut pensions. Uh, you need to get rid of the federal uh, minimum wage in Puerto Rico because they're getting paid too much. Uh, so on and so forth. The same exact, oh, we need to privatize the electric power authority. You need to privatize the school system and sell off public schools. This is exactly the same IMF formula that's been in Greece that they're suffering under now, that Argentina rebelled against, that Ecuador rebelled against. So even the colony gets to have the IMF report. In fact, in Puerto Rico, we are calling it the the Freddy Krueger report. (laughs) So you mentioned uh, Argentina. Let's talk a little bit about that. Argentina defaulted on its debt famously a few years back and was able to renegotiate but there was this one percent of these what they were calling the vulture funds who refused to make a deal yes it's actually close to 10 percent and the so you have to understand that the vulture funders do not do lending what they do is they wait to find distressed areas where oh you got like junk bond or near junk bond status and then their debt gets offered in the secondary bond market for pennies on the dollars that's when they buy it now, these vulture funders 
lenders refused to do any kind of deals with Argentina. And I said, no, we want it and we want it in full. And they have a lawsuit against Argentina in New York. Now, Argentina is a sovereign country, so it has a little bit of protection. They're doing the exact same thing with Puerto Rico. They, in fact, there is going to be a meeting in the city group uh, headquarters in New York uh, of these creditors and also the, the Puerto Rican government. The Puerto Rican government is going to be represented by Ann Kruger. <laughs> so just to give you an idea of what we're dealing with. My goodness, there's so much there. I want to touch a little bit about how U.S. progressives in in the United States have been a factor in what's going on in Puerto Rico. I mean, do you feel that the U.S. progressives have played a positive role in what's going on in Puerto Rico? What are your thoughts about that? Well, based on my many years of experience with this and of trying to interest the U.S. progressives in Puerto Rico, their colony, there was a brief period of time when the decades-long Vieques struggle resulted in those three-year periods period of intense civil disobedience and at that point you did see some interest you did see some involvement except for that there has been very little interest in the United States especially here in in the Bay Area very very little interest in plenty of other places Cuba Argentina Greece uh, Nicaragua but not in their own colony it's been a long and frustrating struggle a lonely struggle, I have to say. And really, uh, as far as I'm concerned, they, they really need to step it up because this is big. For By the way, the Puerto Rico's bonds were all, those are, are on the municipal bond market and with triple exemptions for all different types of things because of Puerto Rico's special status. Everybody's pensions have uh, have bond holdings in Puerto Rico. So if if nothing else, maybe that should make people care. And why do you think people historically haven't paid a lot of attention to to Puerto Rico? A little bit closer to home, a little bit, you know, kind of ignoring uh, the history of colonial rule, the, the continuing history of colonial rule, not only the, the destruction of the indigenous nations on whose lands uh, we are squatting here, and of course it's, it's connections with, with other colonial projects, for example, Israel and Palestine. But I, I think it's a little bit closer to home. It's a little bit easier to talk about Cuba, to talk about the, the U.S boycott of Cuba, which is very important. But what's not well known is that the U.S. embargo for Puerto Rico has been of longer duration and it gets much less attention. And I would argue it's had much more serious effects. Yeah, I know a lot of the rules on shipping and importation has to happen on U.S. ships and other restraints that make it very difficult for Puerto Rico's economy to diversify because everything has to come through a U.S. ship. Yes, Puerto Rico, everything that comes in and goes out has to go on U.S. registered ships with U.S. crews. The U.S. Merchant Marine is the least efficient, most obsolete, and most expensive merchant marine in the world. And in fact, the U.S. Virgin Islands doesn't have to do this, but Puerto Rico does have to do it. And if you look at the numbers and in all the reports, it seems that U.S. merchant marine might well go belly up if it was not for that Puerto Rico um, uh, traffic. Now, the U.S. Navy waited and said, well, the U.S. merchant marine, we can actually use that in an emergency, and we don't want it to go belly under. So we oppose 
Puerto Rico getting exempt from the what they call the cabotage laws. Basically, Puerto Rico is paying for the U.S. Navy to have uh, an auxiliary in times of emergency. Also, I saw something floating around uh, one of the Southern House of Representatives, a man named Jeffrey Duncan, talked about, floated around a letter to his colleagues about creating a federal financial control board for Puerto Rico. Can you talk about how that exacerbates their loss of financial and fiscal sovereignty. Yes, it's not just it's not just him. He, he he was quoted, but I've seen this before. Basically, it's having a federal a syndicate syndicature like they have with Detroit outside of Puerto Rico, basically take over Puerto Rico's finances, basically completely ignore the government that's already there, and decide which, for example, if your electric bills in Puerto Rico, whether the rates should go up, how much of that should go to the creditors. Uh, it's basically direct colonial rule rather than an indirect colonial rule. It's something that Puerto Rico has had before from, from the U.S. government, and obviously that there is a great risk of that happening again. And that is the voice of Deborah Santana. She's a professor at Mills College, a longtime activist about Puerto Rico, and she's talking to us about the Puerto Rican economy. We just have a few minutes left. Before I let you go, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you look at the future? What are the certain milestones that we need to look out for? What's happening in the near future about Puerto Rico that those of us who are concerned about its economy and its people should be on the alert for? Just a couple of things. One, when the United States invaded Cuba during the Spanish-American War and sponsored Cuba's uh, independence, the government of Cuba actually had a debt. And the United States declared that because it had been incurred under colonial rule, uh, Cuba did not have to pay this debt. 100% of Puerto Rico's debt is incurred under colonial rule, and actually the United States should pay 100% of it. As far as what could be happening in Puerto Rico, there is a tremendous amount of mobilization going on in Puerto Rico, a a lot of confusion also, because keep in mind, we have been under 117 years of U.S. colonial rule, and and almost 500 years before that of Spanish rule, and our, uh, our options and our media and our reports and information has been somewhat limited. But that being said, there is a tremendous amount of movement uh, among Puerto Ricans to try to come together and figure out what our alternatives are, maybe to do a public audit on our own, even if the government can't or won't do it. Remember, we have colonial parties. trying to work out some way of coming to a response ourselves. And also there is a very strong agroecological movement in Puerto Rico. We need to really expand that and to basically take control of that so that we can limit our our dependence on the outside stuff, because that's another way that, that the United States controls us. What we would like to see is some solidarity and some active concrete steps in the United States. I know that in New York there are some Puerto Ricans who are going to be uh, demonstrating in, in the Hamptons against the hedge funders. But this needs to be made a big issue and KPFA needs to be covering this on a regular basis. Thank you so much. That is the voice of Deborah Santana, professor at Mills College who's talked to us about Puerto Rico. Thank you so much, Deborah Santana. Una hoja en blanco Es lo que necesito Donde la ansiedad Y la apatía se oculte Donde la ansiedad Y la impaciencia se refugie Donde la ansiedad 
y la impaciencia se refugien aliviando mis pesares va la hoja de papel convirtiéndose en aliada de los asuntos de la ligerita quiero ser ligerita quiero ser así de blanca de blanca como una hoja de For La Raza Chronicles, my guest today is Rafael Jesus Gonzalez. Listeners are familiar with Rafael Jesus Gonzalez because he is a spiritual leader, a poet, an educator, and an activist. And we call upon him frequently for his analysis, his poetry, and his leadership. And he has been invited to do the opening ceremonies at the International Tribunal of Conscience of Peoples in Movement in New York City, which was the first U.S. hearing on human rights crisis in Mexico and immigrant justice. It took place September 25th to September 27th of this year, 2015, at New York New University in New York. Bienvenido. Rafael Jesús González. Muchas gracias, Nina. Eres muy amable. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Now, you did the initiating ceremony. What was that like? Well, it, it was quite wonderful, to tell you the truth. We felt that the Tribunal of Conscience, which was set up to try the state of Mexico for violation of human rights and the United States for collusion with Mexico in this problem, we thought that space should be opened in a sacred manner, and I was invited to open the space in the traditional indigenous ways of the Americas by invoking the four directions and creating sacred space in which a sacred activity, the search of justice, was to be conducted. And you particularly focused on the disappearance of the 43 youth from Mexico. Yes, that was one of the main focuses. And very extraordinarily, among the jurors, the honorary jurors were Leonard Peltier, Oscar Lopez Rivera, Mumia Bujamal, Maria Guardado, all four political prisoners. Yes, that's correct. And we had letters from Peltier and letters from uh, Abu Jamal that were read at, at the tribunal. And we will be airing Mumia Abu Jamal's statement in Spanish. Wonderful. So tell us about this tribunal of conscience. Well, as you might imagine, it was quite intense. It was quite painful to hear the testimonies of the parents of the 43 disappeared students. The witnesses were very moving in their testimony. We had representatives from the parents of the 43 disappeared students. There was uh, evidence presented by Annabel Hernandez and Steve Fisher, journalists doing investigative reports in Mexico over the violence. 
the the El Paso Juarez border uh, researchers doing research on the disappeared and murdered women in Juarez. It was a plethora of human rights violations that were treated. You mentioned the role of the United States as complicit in all this came up. What was that role? Yes. Well, many of the human rights violations had to do with the migration, the waves of migration from Central America and Mexico. From the evidence presented, the jury surmised that the U.S. is actually in collusion with this human right violations. The United States was censored, uh, found guilty of collusion, on three particular measures. The effects that NAFTA and CAFTA has had on Mexico and Central America that has forced this waves of migration. The United States has been supporting elitists and anti-democratic governments, both in Mexico and in Honduras and in Guatemala and in the other countries of Central America, El Salvador, etc. Also, the United States was found guilty having militarized Mexico so that it becomes a buffer for migration waves between the U.S.-Mexican borders and the Central American-Mexican borders. The guns and the helicopters and the tanks that we shipped to Mexico under the Medida Accords have been used for violation of human rights. Another issue in which the United States was found guilty was this cynical war against drugs that has made it profitable to deal in drugs and also gives the United States an excuse to intervene in countries under the excuse of the drug wars. This has proved disastrous for Mexico, where the venues for economic well-being are closed by NAFTA or greatly reduced with NAFTA, and the profitable alternative is drugs. Then, with the militarization of Mexico, the war between the drug lords and the Mexican government has intensified, especially since often the lines between the drug cartels and the Mexican government grow quite blurred and questionable. So for days you listened to testimony about all of this collusion by our own government in these horrible human rights crimes. It must have been very powerful. It was. As I say, it was very intense. It was very heart-rending. And you, as a poet, of course, responded in a poem. Yes, I did. Could you share that poem with us, please? Yes, I will. Rafael Jesus Gonzalez always writes in two languages. He'll read the first Spanish version and then the English. Alzamos las manos, no en súplica sino desesperación, en rabia, en demanda, en protesta contra las manos sangrientas de los criminales y del gobierno, imposible distinguir los unos del otro. Ya estoy cansado de tantos regaños, dijo el procurador. Pues cánsese más, señor procurador, que queremos a nuestros hijos Nuestros del pueblo, que vivos se los llevaron, y vivos los queremos. Seguiremos alzando las manos con el 43 
y a un lema de la injusticia que sufrimos y ya no es tolerable que suframos más. Mientras tanto, el presidente visita a los Estados Unidos para discutir la seguridad y la economía. ¿Seguridad y economía de quién? ¿Pedir más armas para el crimen y la represión? ¿Seguridad de los ricos? ¿Asegurarles ganancias a costo nuestro? ¿Entregar la economía a empresas extranjeras de libre comercio? No nos confundan con banderas ya manchadas, sucias de injuria. Cansados estamos nosotros y alzamos las manos, clamando como la llorona por nuestros hijos, que vivos se los llamaron y vivos los queremos. Beautiful poem. Can we hear it in English? We raise our hands, not in supplication, but desperation. Rage, demand, protest against the bloody hands of the criminals and the government. Impossible to distinguish the ones from the other. I'm tired of so many scoldings, said the prosecutor. Well, be more tired yet, Mr. Prosecutor. For we want our children, ours of the people, that alive were taken, and live we want them back. We will go on raising our hands with the 43 now a motto of the injustice that we suffer, and it's no longer tolerable that we suffer any longer. Meanwhile, the President visits the U.S. of A. to discuss security in the economy, Whose security and economy? Ask for more weapons for crime and repression? Assuring them profits at our cost? Surrender the economy to foreign enterprises of free trade? Do not confuse us with flags now stained, dirty with outrage. Tired are we, and we raise our hands, crying like La Llorona for our children, who alive were taken, and alive we want them back. You just heard Rafael Jesús González reading his original poem. Muchas gracias, Rafael Jesús González, for your report back and your poetry. Thank you, Nina. It's a pleasure always being with you. The same. Un placer. Gracias. We will now bring you a commentary produced by Prison Radio by Mumia Abu-Jamal, this commentary is in Spanish and focuses on the 43 disappeared from Ayotzinapa in Mexico. Buenos parentes. Hola. A los parentes de hijos eristuriantes de México. La lucha por justicia del gobierno de país es una lucha internacional de pueblo de todos mundo. Es una lucha la humanidad. Los parentes La lucha por justicia continua. Viva la lucha por las 43 estudiantes donde la nación imprisionida. Soy Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio.
You've just heard Mumia Abu-Jamal. This piece was produced by Prison Radio. The Madrid-based Flamenco Suite Española presents Castro Romero Flamenco, a Spanish flamenco dance company comprised of three siblings, Rosario Ricardo y José Castro Romero. They are in the claimed show Esencia Flamenca. This show will happen on October 9th in San Francisco at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco. It'll also be on Sunday, October 11th at Redwood City at the Fox Theater. We're lucky to be able to offer a pair of tickets to this show, and we will be offering tickets to the San Francisco show at the Palace of Fine Arts. We're going to give our tickets away to the fifth callers, and we want folks who are calling to let our wonderful, wonderful board op, Erica Bridgman, let her know when she picks up the phone, what is the name of this flamenco show? Call 510-848-848. Four four two five. That's five ten eight four eight four four two five. Enjoy. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have in the studio Lou Demetes. He is the producer of The Other Barrio, a movie we've been hearing about for years now, actually. It's based on a short story by the poet laureate of San Francisco, Alejandro Murguia, and made into a film which I had the pleasure of seeing. And the remarkable thing about the film, which I saw months and months ago, is that as time passes, the film becomes more and more important and more and more true. Welcome, Lou Demetes. Thank you, Nina. I'm very happy to be here again. So tell us about the film and about the showings that you're going to have of it. Well, the film is based on a short story, as you said, by Alejandro Murguia, who is the current poet laureate of San Francisco. And it takes place in the Mission District, and it is kind of, although it's a fictional film, it's based on true events. I'm the producer, and also produced and directed by Dante Bateo. And it was our world premiere in February at the San Francisco Independent Film Festival. And now we're coming back to San Francisco. We've been touring around the U.S. at other festivals, and now we're happy to announce that we're back at the Brava, where we started, and we're going to have four nights of screenings starting on October 16th at 7 and 9.30, Saturday, October 17th at 7 
and 9.30. Sunday, October 18th, uh, we have a 3.30 p.m. matinee and then an evening showing at 6 p.m. And finally, we will close on Thursday, October 22nd at 7.30 p.m. Well, one of the things about the film, I also saw it at the Brava Theater, where it's going to be playing right there in the heart of the mission, that one of the things about it is seeing the mission in the film while being in the mission in the theater. Can you tell people about the story and the themes that it relates to? Well, the film is based on a short story that Alejandro wrote uh, that was published uh, about maybe about 10 years ago in a book called San Francisco Noir, which was short stories from different neighborhoods of San Francisco. Alejandro based his story loosely on the Gartland Hotel fire in 1975, which killed 12 people. It was ruled arson. The hotel was on the corner of 16th and Valencia, and no one was ever arrested and convicted for that arson fire. So he took that fire and he placed it around the time of the first dot-com boom, around 2000, more or less. And, And then we have taken it and we place it in the present context of the mission. So the story revolves around a fire that takes place. Our protagonist, uh, Roberto Morales, is a housing investigator for the city of San Francisco. And he is told to look into the fire, and his boss wants him to rule it a, you know, an accident. And, uh, but as he starts to investigate, he determines that it was indeed arson. And so he's faced with this dilemma of what to do powers that be want it swept under the rug, but he wants to find exactly what happened and who did it and provide some justice for the people that died in the fire. And I think since I saw the film, there have been five more fires in the mission. Is that correct? Well, almost correct. The first one you're probably thinking of actually happened right before the film opened. It happened 10 days before the film opened at the Indie Fest in February. It was a big fire on the corner of 22nd and Mission Street, in which one person died in that fire. And since then, yes, there's been at least four other fires in the the mission, and oftentimes they're not able to determine the cause of the fires. Most of these fires, if you follow up on them, it's, it's cause undetermined. And there's a lot of speculation that some of them are arson fires, but it's hard to prove. So what do you speculate? Why might there be these fires? Well, fires historically have been used in the Mission District as a means of redeveloping the neighborhood. The time of the Gartland Hotel fire in 1975, there was a whole slew of fires. In fact, uh, as we did research for the film, There was a publication called the North Mission News back then, and Victor Miller, who I knew, was the publisher. And Victor did a whole series of investigations of fires that took place. At that time, the BART line was being run out Mission Street. There was uh, a plan, downtown plan, to redevelop the mission, sort of along the lines of the Fillmore District. They wanted to basically bring downtown San Francisco out Mission Street and along the BART lines. That was only stopped because of the, the community uh, rising up and organizing and not allowing that to happen. But at that period of time, there were several fires. Many of them were actually ruled arson by the San Francisco Fire Department. So these fires have continued. We see them again. 
Oftentimes, when a place is burned, the original inhabitants are not allowed back in. The the owners, the landlords, oftentimes will decide to sell the units as tenants in common. And so they actually sell them instead of the residents that were there coming back and being able to live in those those apartments. So this film is not just related to the fires, but to the other question of the gentrification of the mission and the gentrification of many neighborhoods in San Francisco and right here in Oakland and, in fact, all across the country. This is a big problem. And the film, since it it is such a dark theme and it is called a noir film, the film is very physically dark. So many of the scenes are in shadow and in alleyways and very mysterious places. Can you speak about that? Well, yes. It is a noir film. And and the history of noir is uh, actually uh, when noir started in the, late, in the 40s and 50s, a lot of the films were being produced in, um, in studios. So the noir filmmakers actually went out on the streets. They didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have, you know, a lot of backing. And so they would film on the streets. And the use of of light in the noir films is actually, it's something that has developed, but it is, it's it's a stark. It's a stark kind of lighting, sort of in the sense that, you know, life can be stark. And, you know, life can be bright, but it can be dark. And so in trying to give the feel, the lighting is very important. So, yeah, you will see much of the film takes, actually takes place at night. And even the lighting of the scenes at night are oftentimes, it's not very bright. It's kind of contrasty, shall we say. But the film is not a downer. Even though it's in the dark, even though it's dealing with a very unpleasant subject of fires and gentrification and even the death of immigrants, it's a positive film because it's stating the problem to ask the viewer to do something about it. Can you speak about that and also about the actors and the music? Well, first of all, let me say, in addition to the fire theme that's in the film, we also bring it to the present day with the gentrification that's taking place now with the high-tech businesses and residents moving in. So we do, we do deal with that question. And it was very interesting, Nina, when we were shooting the film because, as we now know, the Mission District has risen up and people have they've protested, they're organizing, and there's a pushback against the gentrification and the evictions of longtime residents. But when we finished the film, it hadn't happened yet. And it was kind of a downer. But just at the time we started editing the film, the neighborhood rose up. And there was a big big march at one of the Day of the Dead celebrations. And then there was a big daytime march. So we were able to incorporate that idea into our film in terms of people fighting back and people struggling. So we do, we do say, uh, without giving away too much, that we have an upbeat portion of the film that we think is very important, and it's very important for people to, to see that. And, of course, it's a mystery, and it also has a certain romantic episode happen in it. It's got all these exciting elements. Can you talk about the music? Yes. Well, I was so fortunate to ask my 
good friend, your son, uh, Greg Landau, if he would be involved in this film. Greg's always very busy, but he, he said yes, and it's been wonderful working with him. And, uh, of course, Greg knows all the local musicians and even international musicians, so he was able to bring a lot of people into the film. And we didn't have a lot of money to pay a composer to write an entire soundtrack, so we were able with Greg and working close with him to pick and choose many songs that we felt would fit in the film that had already been recorded, in addition to uh, writing some new material. And then your lead actor is Richard Montoya of Culture Clash, and can you talk about him a little? Well, Richard, yeah, I know, I know Richard. As you know, Nina, my background is as a photographer. My career has been as a, as a photojournalist and documentary photographer. And I, I was uh, fortunate when Culture Class started in 1984, I took their first pictures of Richard and Herbert and Rick Salinas, Herbert Siguenza. I've known Richard for a long time. And he improvised some of these scenes. Is that right? He improvised some, not the scenes themselves, but he improvised the dialogue oftentimes in the scenes. So the uh, mix is quite an artistic mix of all of these people who have been involved in the mission cultural scene themselves over the decades, starting with the writer, yourself, the sound. And Rene Yanez did your production design. Is that why there are so many fabulous murals that pass through the film? Well, Rene, uh, the co-founder of the Galleria de la Raza, of, again, a wonderful guy, a longtime friend of mine. I mean, his, his background and the work that he's done, yes, he's been involved in the murals in the mission. He is really a historian of the murals, and he knows the ones that are still there and the ones that were there and aren't anymore. So he provided a lot of input into what we should photograph and what we should use. Well, this is an art film. This is a documentary, even though it's a fiction film. This is an inspiring film, and it's all going to be showing on Friday, October 16th at the Brava, San Francisco, Saturday, October 17th, again, 7 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., Sunday, October 18th, 3.30 and 6 p.m., And closing night is Thursday, October 22nd, 7.30 p.m. only. And it's all happening at the Brava Theater in San Francisco, 2781 24th Street, right there at York Street. Thank you so much, Lou Demetes. Well, thank you, Nina. I love coming on your show, and I'm glad I was able to come back again. So am I. And I think people are going to really enjoy the film. Yes, please come and see it. The music you're going to be hearing is from the film, The Other Barrio, which will be playing soon at the Brava Theater starting Friday, the 16th of October, the 17th of October, the 18th of October, and closing on October 22nd at the Brava Theater. Music composed by Greg Landau and Camilo Landau. The following music is from the soundtrack of El Otro Barrio, featuring music by Camilo Landau and the Robot Ninjas and voice by Guillermo Gomez Peña. The primitive tattoos about the homegirls' rowdiness and long black nails and moan that everything closes so early in the mecca of hipsterism.
it's a complicated border war. On the surface, it's a war between boomboxes and iPods, between tequila and more expensive tequila. But deep inside, it's a much nastier war between those who remember and those who forget. Those who are here to stay and those who are just passing through. Last night, at one of my local bars, this old Chicano drunk whispered into my ear as if consoling himself, In two years, all these wannabe eccentrics will all return to Iowa or Wisconsin or whatever the f they came from. It's a complicated border war. The gaze of the homeboys is heavy and defiant, true, but the gaze of the hipsters is vacant. So what is more offensive, the cultural boldness of working-class Latinos or the existential indifference of the Anglos? Hard to tell. Do the hipsters and the locals ever meet? Occasionally during a one-night stand, and mostly the gays and lesbians. According to hipsterologist Claire Light, 21st century heteros aren't mating outside their socio-cultural group. For me, the unresolved question is, am I a hipster or a local? Can I be both, please? The problem is that, to the hipsters, I look like some sort of biker shaman. And to me, they still look like tourists.
Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I am Brenda Yescas. And now we're bringing you a calendar of upcoming events for the Bay Area. For Thursday, October 8th from 6 to 12, Latin Legends Rock La Mision. 100% of the proceeds go towards the Save the Mission initiative. Come rock out with Leo Rosales from Malo, Dr. Loco, John Calloway, John Santos, Mission Vario Project, and more. For more information, go to facebook.com slash save the mission. And that show is at Rocapulco. Friday, October 9th from 7 to 11 p.m., Sabor, Salsa, Merengue, and more. It's a free dance event at La Peña Cultural Center from 7 to 11 p.m. It happens every Friday. Versa Discodes presents Tormenta Tropical at the Elbow Room. That's Saturday, October 10th at 10 p.m. For more information, go to elbow.com. That's E-L-B-O.com. San Francisco Bay Area Cuban Festival with Dos Four, Grupo Experimental Nago, Grupo Todavía, and more at the Mission Cultural Center. That's Saturday and Sunday, October 10th and 11th. For more information, go to missionculturalcenter.org. Gina Chavez and Diana Gameros at La Peña Cultural Center. That's Sunday, October 11th from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. For more information, go to lapeña.org. Direct from Madrid, Flamenco Suite Española returns to California and presents Castro Romero's Flamenco Estancia Flamenca, October 9th and 11th in San Francisco and Redwood City. For more information, go to castroromeroflamenco.com. You just heard a listing of upcoming musica, arte, and other cultural events in the Bay Area. If you have events to add, email us at larrazachronicles at kpfa.org.
Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles on KPFA Radio. To stay up on our news and calendar and listing of local events, like us on Facebook. That's La Raza Chronicles on Facebook.com. We also invite everyone to check out our archives at soundcloud.org slash La Raza Chronicles. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. Thank you.